1: All right, Bruce, it's time for what happened when the world wrestling federation ran the 1988 Royal rumble. I got to tell you, Bruce, I've wanted to talk about this for a long time, and we're going to do something a little different. We're actually going to encourage you to pull this up on the WWE network. And we're going to watch the Royal rumble match with you here in just a little bit, we're going to talk about the event for a while, but eventually we're going to throw it. To the wwe network and we want to watch this original royal rumble match with you we're gonna watch the whole show just the actual match bruce i guess we should start at the beginning this thing goes down on january 24th 1988 from cops coliseum in hamilton ontario canada and the attendance is a sellout around thousand folks of course we remember this is during the jockeying for position with jim crockett promotions So this is actually aired on the USA network for free. Uh, of course we know that all the following Royal rumbles are going to be pay-per-views, but this is a network special and it gets a huge 8.2 rating. We're going to talk about all the rumor and innuendo, but this is actually one of the first shows you put together for Vince McMahon,
2: right? This was the first, uh, live television show that I put together. Uh, helped write the Survivor series and Thanksgiving in 1987, but this was the first time that was actually programming a live television show with live breaks in it and everything. And, uh, it was kind of a daunting challenge because I was just thrown out there to do it and never had really done it before, but, uh, I think it turned out all right.
1: I would say so when you guys, um, have a sellout like this. I mean, this is when the business is arguably as hot as it's ever been for the
2: company or early 1988, right? Sure. It was business was good. This was a time when all you had to do was put Hulk Hogan, uh, in a match, no matter who he was wrestling and the damn thing would sell out. And right now, all you have to do is put WWE on the marquee and they do decent business, but at this time, Hogan was red hot coming off of the Pontiac Silverdome and WrestleMania three. The business for WWF was off the charts, So it was a good time and a good time to be in the business. So let's talk a little bit about
1: what the uh, plans were heading into this. Of course, we know that, um, you guys are going to be doing WrestleMania four and, you know, WrestleMania three is, is the biggest pay-per-view of all time. The biggest wrestling event of all time. Did you guys already know at this point that you were going to be doing a tournament format? Had that already been pretty much established?
2: Yes. For WrestleMania four, that was Vince's idea was to do the tournament. And originally, you know, the big, big deal about WrestleMania four, not even so much crowning a new champion. Yes. That's what it was, but it was essentially going to be Hulk versus Andre three. And the third time that. Hulk and Andre were going to meet on a national stage in a pay-per-view event one-on-one for the third time. This was going to be the rubber match.
1: So at this point, had you guys, I mean, you, you told us about the rubber match and it being the third time with Hulk and Andre, did you already have Macho Man fingered as being the champion at this point? or was there consideration that it would actually be Ted DiBiase? I know we've talked about this a lot and there's tons of rumor and innuendo out there, but I found it interesting watching this show back that there is a ton of Ted DiBiase on this show.
2: Yeah, there definitely was. And by this time in January, I want to say Vince, Vince, had a pretty good idea of where he was going with macho man there before this. It was, it was Ted DiBiase was in consideration, but it was never dead set that it was going to be DiBiase coming out as a champion, but DiBiase definitely coming out as the main heel in the whole program. So it's sort of interesting to see
1: how this all takes place and it's kind of fun to think about. And I think we've talked about this recently, even in the last few weeks, that in a weird way. Dusty Rhodes is sort of the innovator behind the Survivor Series and the Royal Rumble because they're both shows that are done in response to what Jim Crockett Promotions is doing. Of course, we know that Survivor Series 87, which we just covered, is actually a show done in response to Starrcade 87. Well, this show is sort of more of the same. Jim Crockett Promotions has decided they wanted to sort of double down on pay-per-view and they're going to do the bunkhouse stampede, which we're going to be covering over with uh, Tony Schiavone at WHWMonday.com. So you guys counter-program it with a free special here, not head-to-head on pay-per-view, but to sort of undermine the buys. Now, I expect you to do a little bit of wiggling here, but we have to admit that this is counter-programming for Bunkhouse Stampede. Do we not?
2: Absolutely. It it definitely was, and it was Crockett's first attempt at pay-per-view. So Vince did not want them to have a a huge success on pay-per-view. So we were the premier pay-per-view provider at the time. Why not offer a free show and offer it on our cable partner, USA Network?
1: So you guys are running a show about... 350 miles away, uh, from where Crockett is doing his thing. Crockett is in Nassau Coliseum, which certainly feels like Vince McMahon territory. And you guys are of course, uh, going to do this, uh, Royal Rumble show in Hamilton, Ontario. Does it feel like a little bit of a, a slight or an invitation of war, so to speak, that they're running their
2: show inside of New York? It was the first time that they had been. Well, I, I don't know if it was the first time because they had run the Meadowlands, but in the traditional New York market and running one of our buildings, as far as uh, the Long Island building, yeah, it was. Uh, they fired that shots. So we're like, okay, let's go. So we're going,
1: you know, through a string here of shows like this: Survivor Series and Starcade and then Royal Rumble and Bunkhouse Stampede. And the next major show is going to be WrestleMania four. So since Vince sort of counter-programmed with a free special, the clash of the champions will be created and sting is going to become a made man against Ric Flair on the day of WrestleMania four. Is this the most bitter rivalry that Vince has had? I mean, he really hasn't had anyone sort of stand up to him in this level of competition with any of the other territories, right?
2: The only guys that really stood up to Vince and and fought during the day were Crockett did bill Watts did and Paul Bosch in, in that, uh, mid South Houston area where Watts ran free shows against him and, and Watts did everything that he possibly could to protect his territory in the mid South area. Crockett had a stronghold in the South, in the Carolinas and in Georgia, but during this time, this was probably our most formidable competition was Jim Crockett. It was really our only competition at that time. So Pat Patterson is the guy
1: behind these ideas, uh, specifically the Royal rumble. And I think most people who are listening to this probably just remember Pat Patterson as one of, uh, Mr. McMahon's on air stooges more so than being the first intercontinental champion who historically won that at a tournament in Rio de Janeiro. And you were telling me that your dad was actually at that tournament in Rio and saw Pat
2: Patterson win, right? One of his top five. I think that was his number one intercontinental championship match that he ever saw. In Rio
1: and back then wrestling was more of a shoot. So for Pat to be able to best all those guys in Rio it with your dad there. I mean, it's, it's something that people will talk about forever.
2: Are you kidding me? It was the greatest tournament Rio de Janeiro ever saw that week.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's uh it's a wonder that Pat doesn't get more credit since it was in Brazil for the creation of jujitsu. You know, I mean, that's the way Pat was able to win. I don't know that everybody is in the loop, but tell everybody what Pat's finishing maneuver was to take on the crown that day. The double reverse Furnham.
2: That's and that. not everybody, not every, you know, people can do the reverse Furnham. It's the double reverse Furnham that is extremely tricky, and very few people have ever been able to master that.
1: It's sort of like Tanya Harding's triple axle, right? Lots of people do the double, but when you go triple, I mean, that's that yeah. Pat Patterson level of the double reverse Furnham.
2: So, exactly and once he's got it on you man you're nothing you can do uh
1: the difference of course between the royal rumble and a traditional over-the-top battle royal is that the participants come into the match at different intervals not all at the same time at the very beginning of the match and pat patterson is the brainchild behind this and he wrote in his book i wanted to create something special something just like we had in san francisco where it had been such a hot event the more I kept running the idea over in my mind, the more it took shape and I was sure that I was on to something. I felt it. Every instinct in my body told me it would work. So I finally brought the idea to Vince and he laughed at the concept at first saying that an hour was way too long to keep the fans interested. I didn't get upset. I knew sometimes he needed time for my ideas to sink in, but I made sure to say, all right, but keep it in mind. Will you? Because I know this will work. Now, of course, we're going to talk about how this came to be but when do you remember pat patterson first mentioning this concept is this something that you had heard about months before and you were just waiting on the right time or place to do it
2: i heard it right about the time that we were talking about doing this live special on usa it was the first time i had ever heard pat pitch the concept it was interesting and it was different it wasn't the traditional he kept i think what killed not killed it because obviously it came to life but what was killing it in Vince's head was Pat continuously called it a battle Royal and Vince just didn't feel that an hour long battle Royal was going to hold the crowd's attention. He thought, Oh God, that'll be boring as hell. But the way Pat was explaining it with a new participant coming every two minutes, he's like a brand new match starts every two minutes. And then you get rid of people and there's more people that come in, but the big, pitch that I remember from Pat was that every two minutes, you got a brand new match because you got a brand new guy in the ring. So it's going to keep it exciting. It's going to keep it going. And people are going to look, be looking back, wondering who's next to come out into the thing. So it sounded good to me. I liked the idea, but I also came from a place where the 22 man battle Royal was a huge event and that was something I was pitching. So you were pitching a 22 man. Well, a 22-man two-ring battle royal should clarify that. That was something that uh, Paul Bosch had done every year around January. It was two rings, and you had 22 guys start in one ring. They throw their opponent into the second ring. Then a new battle royal starts over there. They throw out to the floor. When someone rings, wins ring number one, they wait until everybody fights out ring number two. The winner of ring number one meets the winner of ring number two for the championship money. Uh, it feels a little bit like a
1: WCW concept that they did with battle bowl. Um, what do you remember about 22? Is there some sort of special reason that it's 22 guys, as opposed to say 20.
2: I think it was just something that, that Paul liked and it was a 22 man two ring battle we uh, all the twos, 22 men two ring battle Royal for $22,000. Everybody had to pay a $1,000 entry fee to get into it.
1: Oh, no, that's a fun gimmick. Okay, so let's talk about how the actual Royal Rumble comes to be. Do you guys call up USA and say, hey, we'd like to do a special, and you're trying to counter-program Crockett? Or does someone from USA say, hey, we'd like a special, whenever you can figure out a time to do one? How does Dick Eversall fit into this? I know he had worked on a lot of the Saturday Night's Main Event shows, You can check out our dick was everywhere shirt over at brucepritchard.com. But here he's doing something with USA.
2: How does all this come to be? Well, the USA network had come to Vince and was looking for some more specials. We had done the slammies and they were like, we we want some more special event type shows from you guys. Coincidentally, here's the perfect time. Crockett's running on pay-per-view. Why not give them a special right opposite that? And it worked. It was a great coincidence that USA was looking for more specials. And so Vince was able to provide this for him. Dick Eversall was coincidentally not doing anything at the time. It's just kind of hanging out. But Dick didn't have any official, any official anything in, in, as far as negotiations with USA or anything like that. Dick just happened to be a part of this. That seems kind of weird. Uh, if he's a, if he's an NBC guy, why is he a part of this? Well, he wasn't an NBC guy at the time. He he had his own company at this time. Uh, Dick had his own production company. He was doing his own productions. We had done Saturday night's main event at NBC, but Dick had his own production company and he would work with Vince on different specials and do some different things. Dick was a big part of the slammies presentation and they were friends. So as far as this, it was a live television special. And the first one we did, Dick was going to tag along and help us out on it.
1: Don't you love when Dick tags along? Ah, he was everywhere. So in Pat Patterson's book, he writes that Dick was not impressed with the card that you guys wrote originally. And Vince, when he hears this, suggests, Pat, tell Dick about your stupid idea for that battle royal. And of course, Pat then goes into pitching. Do you remember that meeting? Were you there when Dick sees what the original idea was and
2: he's like, eh? I I don't know if it's the original, original meeting, but yes, I was there for the uh for a meeting with Dick and we were all kind of looking at the card and it was all centered around Hulk and Andre contract signing for this big February 5th or whatever date it was for the main event on NBC. It was all about the the signing of the next one-on-one match, Hulk and Andre. And it had a little bit of wrestling around it. The card did suck. I mean, look at it. It, it was not... On paper, it wasn't good. And then uh, in execution, it wasn't all that great. Didn't hold up that well all these many years later. So thank God for Dick. Because he spoke up <laughs> and said, yeah, this this is not a good card. We need something else. We need an attraction. We need something with a little pizzazz. And that's when Vince came up with the, Go ahead, pitch him. And Pat went on to, to pitch what is now considered one of the greatest pay-per-views of the year, the Royal Rumble. So what, the match.
1: What was on the original um card that we didn't wind
2: up seeing here? Well, so what did the Royal Rumble match itself replace? I think it was probably two more matches that I can't even remember, with one of them being dug in and there may have been another tag match in there. But it was it was all matches. It was all just matches that was essentially a live, um, for lack of a better term, this was a a Madison square garden show or a, a prism Philadelphia show or a Boston garden show. There wasn't anything that was really special. That was must see TV. It was just a bunch of wrestling matches. So it would have been a card much like you would have seen at any other arena.
1: It's worth mentioning that the day before, you guys were in Landover, Maryland, and Lexington, Kentucky, doing double shots. Uh, one of those shows was a matinee, and then here on the twenty fourth, you're also running a show in Halifax, Nova Scotia. That show has Sensational Sherry, Rock and Robin, Coco Beware, Sika, uh, the Rougeau Brothers, Conquistadors, Demolition Axe, and Demolition Smash in singles matches. Ken Pateras in one of those. Brutus the Barber, Beefcake. Uh, Greg Valentine, honky tonk man, and Randy Savage are all on that one. And that's head to head with the Royal rumble from 1988. And I guess the reason I I, I wanted to point that out is we're talking about how, and you, you believe at this point, things are sort of already in place for Randy Savage to be the top guy at WrestleMania, but he's not even on the Royal rumble
2: because he was already booked and Vince didn't want to rebook it. This wasn't, you know, this was to spotlight and get us to the main event which was going to be in February. Um so Vince wanted to get there first before he was even thinking about WrestleMania and Savage was spotlighted and uh featured on the main event. But here he was already booked. They needed somebody on top to draw in Nova Scotia, that's why Randy was there. And Bench just thought by having this, uh, show in Hamilton and putting it on the air where we could do TV there, it was just another show and it was going to feature Andre and Hulk. And that was all they needed. The Royal rumble was pretty much a mistake.
1: You guys do TV the very next day at Madison square garden. Uh, and you guys are selling out everywhere. You know, you sold out here in Hamilton and there's 16,200 paid. Uh, it was announced at 18,000, but there was really about 18,000 folks in the building. The next day in Madison square garden, it's 19,000 and change. It's another sellout the day after that Hershey 9,000, but nine thousands is a sellout. You guys are selling out pretty much everywhere that you go, but how far in advance did you put tickets on sale? For the Royal rumble, because you announced that you're going to be sort of counter-programming the bunkhouse stampede, but this doesn't feel like something you have a bunch of lead time on, right?
2: No, we really didn't. And tickets at that time in the different areas, they would go on sale because we ran that area a lot. We ran it off in either Toronto or Hamilton, Ontario. I don't know exactly this specific promotion, but it was probably only six to eight weeks, if that.
1: So you guys pitch or Pat pitches Dick on... The concept and Patterson would write Eversall loved the concept right away. He immediately imagined the drama of the clock ticking down on screen and the audience's anxious anticipation of who was going to enter the ring next being played out every two minutes. Eversall was going crazy. He says, My God, this is the greatest thing for television. Vince, this is great TV. Do you remember that being Dick's reaction and just him falling in love with the idea? behind the clock.
2: Well, Dick's idea, Dick's fascination with it was that it was different. It was something he hadn't seen before. So his fascination was on who's next and what's going to happen next coming down. So yes, it was his idea, putting the clock, uh, on the television screen, but also incorporating the clock somehow in the arena and making sure that we either had one of those big basketball scoreboards or some way to put a clock in the arena so that the live audience could then see the clock and they could count down waiting for the next guy to come out.
1: So the actual name, the Royal Rumble, is not something Patterson gets credit for. I guess you guys asked everyone in the, in the office to participate and come up with a list of names and submit those, and somebody suggests the Royal Rumble, and everybody immediately liked it, according to Pat. Do you remember some of the other names that may have been amongst the other 50?
2: Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about the thing was when it was described as a battle royal that people liked the name Royal and they wanted to make it that majestic kind of feel to it. Um, so I want to say we probably even had Battle Brawl. All of the bad names that you can think of that have been used in the wrestling business to describe a royal, I mean a uh, Battle Royal were probably put together to come up with some kind of name and Royal Rumble is the one that just fit and stuck. So, do you remember who
1: deserves credit for the name Royal Rumble?
2: I don't. It Maybe it's Howard Finkel. That sounds like a Finkelism. Sounds like something Howard would have come up with. I'm glad you
1: mentioned that because Howard Finkel is the guy who named WrestleMania, right? Yes, he did. I think it's kind of cool that, you know, he's been around so long, and a lot of people sort of wonder how in the world do you keep a job with Vince McMahon this long? Well, you name fucking WrestleMania for starters. Um, Is it true that one of Vince's original ideas for WrestleMania was colossal tussle?
2: (laughs) I have no idea. It wasn't there for the original WrestleMania ideas, but I could definitely see that being a suggestion and go, God, I love it. Russell tussle. No colossal (laughs) tussle.
0: Colossal tussle. Colossal tussle 42. I can see it now.
1: So Vince tells Pat, start putting the match together. And Pat says he programmed the first rumble all by himself. He says the final touches were completed at the arena the morning of the show, but he kept expecting Vince to give him some sort of direction for what he wanted, but he never did. He said, it's your match. Do you remember there being some concern as to, okay, we've sort of sold Dick on this and we've advertised it. Um, how the fuck do we book a match like this? It feels like it could be quite a process because nobody's ever
2: really put one together like this. Right? Well, not really. It it was, it was a match and that's how Vince looked at it as just a match. That's all it is. Go, go put your match together, Patrick. It's only 20 guys. It's it's like, a you, you say it's a new match. So it's go ahead and put together your 10 new matches. Um, so it wasn't at the point that it is now. It was a, uh, battle Royal with legal run-ins and that's how Pat approached it. So it, it wasn't anything really more than that. And Vince felt how hard can it be? I think Pat originally kind of felt how hard could it be until we got into it. Yeah.
1: He wrote the talent was freaking out the morning of the show because of all my detailed instructions. None of them had ever done a match quite like this before. When it was all said and done, I think they loved it. I was happy too. uh, the first world rumble was a success, but until it was over, we didn't know if it would really work. I knew it was a unique idea, but until the crowd responds, it's sort of hard to know for sure. So. What are the instructions like? I know we've talked about this on an older episode, but to remind everybody again about how a Royal rumble is booked.
2: Well, from the beginning you go and you look, who do you want to win this thing? And then you get your guys in it and you try to, now we try to make sure that there's a lot of issues and angles and programs within the Royal rumble itself for this first one, patches needed bodies. And we had the bodies that were available to us that had already been booked for Hamilton, Ontario for cops Coliseum. So he put it together with all everybody that he had together. And it just, you're looking at it. You didn't have the type of, not everybody had issues and angles. Everybody didn't have stories. It was all about syndication and house shows back in 1988 at this time. So, He's just trying to make a good match out of his concept.
1: So this match itself is uncharted territory. It's a USA network special. There's lots of new stuff being introduced here as the match itself is happening. What's the feedback that you're getting from Dick, the audience USA. When do you guys know that this thing's a home run?
2: I don't think that we really felt that it was a home run quite frankly, that day, we thought it was good. It was interesting, but we were trying to pick it apart and think about how can we make this better? One of the things that came out of it was the phrase Titan time. And that was from Dick and I, as we got into it and we realized where we were in the show, the Dino Bravo weightlifting thing had gone long and some other things had happened on the show that the timing was off. And that was all my fault because I was a little overwhelmed with my first live show that Dick sat next to me at gorilla and we started fudging the times. And instead of going every two minutes, some guys would get a minute and a half. Some guys would get a minute. So, and we would just send them when we needed to send them when it was right for the match. So we learned that as we went along that, Oh man, is two minutes going to be too long for this thing. And Nobody's real, nobody's sitting there with a stopwatch, which I'm sure there were people that were sitting there with a stopwatch, but we just started sending people. And that's where we coined the phrase Titan time. We'll send them when when we're ready, but it wasn't something we look back on that night and go, Oh my God, that was the greatest match ever. It was like, that worked pretty good, but there's gotta be a way to tweak it. Maybe make it better. If we, if, if we ever want to do it again, what was Dick's reaction? pretty much on those same lines. He liked it and felt that Dick felt that the Royal Rumble saved the show overall because it was a long show and it was something that was different on the show and he liked the concept of it. So he liked the match itself and felt that that was the savior of the show.
1: Uh, when it all comes together, is Pat Patterson pretty proud of the way it came together or was he critical of any part of it?
2: Pat was extremely proud and rightfully so he put it together 100% all on his own. And he did, he did it with all the guys in one room at one time, he had very detailed notes, he knew, you know, who's going in, who's coming out and had it all laid out and written down and we had copies made so that everybody that day everybody that was in the Royal rumble had the whole match laid out for him on paper. And I don't know that they had ever done that for anybody before. Um, have
1: you ever heard Pat Patterson's idea behind giving the winner of the Royal rumble, like a cup, sort of like the Stanley cup, where you engrave the previous winners names on it. And then whoever wins it gets this like Memorial trophy.
2: Yeah, definitely. And it's something that he pitched quite often because the early Royal Rumbles were just about winning the Royal Rumble. And there was nothing, at least by having a cup and kind of a Memorial cup, they're fighting for something. Right. They got to hold something and there's a championship at the end of the rainbow, but the way that we did it for so many years, was, it's just a Royal rumble match. You win the rumble match and you got bragging rights for winning the Royal rumble.
1: Well, he's actually pitched, uh, in, including in his book, Hey, you should do this and call it the Patterson cup. Uh, you should do it for the 30th anniversary in 2018 and, uh, make it like the Stanley cup of wrestling, so to speak. And sell replicas of it and yada, yada. I actually think that's kind of fun, and and I guess they've done that in their own way with the Andre the Giant Battle Royal. And it feels like if Pat would have been pitching this all the way back here in the 80s, for it finally to happen, I guess, at WrestleMania 30, where where there's a trophy winner for whoever wins the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal at WrestleMania, it feels like a rib on Pat a little bit for there to be a trophy (laughs) for that one, but not the Royal Rumble.
2: Yeah, but the Royal Rumble now with the winner getting a shot at the championship, I think is, I'm not going to say it's more prestigious than the Andre the Giant Battle Royal, but um, I think it holds a little more prestige being a Royal Rumble winner.
1: This year is going to be interesting because it'll be the first year they're doing the women's Battle Royal. And on this original Royal Rumble show here, there is a tag match for the ladies was there ever consideration for a women's battle royal that you remember coming up with, like through the years, whether it was a Royal Rumble or not, were there ever enough women on the card or did Vince, did Vince ever have an idea to try to do something like that for the women?
2: We did them. We did have them through the years every once in a while, but it, they would be like eight men or ten eight eight men, eight women or 10 women battle royal and just do a regular battle royal with the women, but it would usually be uh, it's funny over the middle or top rope and you are eliminated.
1: There's, um, I don't know that everybody knows this, but the, what we're covering today is not really the first Royal rumble. They actually tried this out on October 4th of 1987 at the Kiel auditorium in St. Louis. And Pat would write, we tried it in St. Louis on a smaller scale. I was not there, but I wish I could have been there because they got it all mixed up. It didn't work. And then Vince told me it's not going to work. Patrick, that battle Royal would be won by one man gang. He last eliminated a junkyard dog. And there were only 12 participants. And the reason they did it here in St. Louis is it was advertised that the winner of the rumble match would face Hulk Hogan for the world title the next time they were back in St. Louis. So even though it's not the first one on TV, the very first one was still for a world title match. So sort the seeds are sort of planted there. Do you remember that first sort of tryout Royal rumble back in October? 87.
2: Yeah. I remember when they, when they did it, I wasn't there to see the actual match. And I remembered the reaction. I think it was chief J strongbow who was the agent and just, they didn't get it. They, they didn't understand it. I don't know that they did the full two minute. Intervals. I'm not sure. I know they didn't do a clock or a buzzer or anything like that. They just had guys running into the match every so, so often, whether it was a minute and a half or two minutes and the crowd really didn't understand it because it didn't have a presentation to it. Like you would get on television on television. You can really show it and you can really make the match special by adding the clock and by the commentary talking about the anticipation of who's coming up next for a live event who had never seen a match like this before. And all of a sudden guys just continually running in and getting a part of the match, I don't think they understood it. And for that reason, I don't think it was very enjoyable. It, um, for whatever reason.
1: There's only like a couple thousand fans there in the building that night in St. Louis, but that was the real first ever Royal rumble. So October 87 in St. Louis, and they do it again though, in March, March 16th, 1988 in Hartford, Connecticut. And this time Rick rude would be the winner. And this feels like you guys are sort of, um, trying the concept out after you do it here in January, the real one on TV. Why try it again in Hartford? just to sort of work the bugs out and see if it's a house show attraction you can take around the loop.
2: Well, in particular, in March of 88, it was Hartford, and it was trying to come up with a different attraction because we had the uh, WrestleMania and the tournament coming up, and it was just a different match to put on the card, and Pat thought that why not do something different and give the guys a break because it could be a little bit easier rather than... Everybody having to go out and have a match on the card, do this big Royal Rumble and guys can take it easy before WrestleMania.
1: Of course, eventually you guys decide to have this become a higher stakes situation. When do you remember the conversation being, Hey, they've got to be doing this for something. Let's give them a title match. And that became, I think it was 93 is the first time that became
2: the the first time you guys did that yeah with yoko zuna and that was a battle that pat and i you know going all the way back to pat feeling there should have been a trophy or should have been some kind of reward for winning the rumble and my just they don't win anything it's it's just it's just a match it's got to have more importance there's got to be more of a reason to enter the royal rumble if we can take the rumble match and then we know who is going to be wrestling at WrestleMania. So Pat and I stayed on Vince for a while before that one and convinced him to make the winner of the Royal Rumble, get a WWF championship match at WrestleMania. And he finally gave in. I don't think that when we did it the first time with Yoko, that Vince was truly a, a on the idea of doing it every single year after that, the year before it had been flair And now we're making the winner face the champion at mania. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll try it.
1: And it feels like, you know, had the the whole Flair storyline not happened. There may not have been the world title shot implication, you know, because, and it was all storyline, of course, where the belt's going to be held up and yada, yada. And I know we weren't, you weren't there for the 92 rumble. But I wondered, you know, in hindsight, looking back, if that match wasn't for the world title, would it have been easy to convince Vince to do that moving forward 93 on for a title shot?
2: I think a lot of things about the 92 Royal Rumble had they not happened. The rumble wouldn't be what it is today. The fact that because the 92 rumble. Was all about the winner being the WWF champion. They were all fighting for something. And you had all top guys in the Royal Rumble match itself. So they were fighting for something. There was a prize at the end of the tunnel and flair and the display winning the championship that night was huge and it worked so. When you see that, you realize what made it work. What made that night, what made that Royal Rumble in everybody's mind, people go back and say, that was the best Royal Rumble. It was the talent. It was the star power that was involved in the Royal Rumble match itself. So when we got to, uh, 93, you add into that, everybody wants a shot at the WWF champion. So you add into that. The star, you get the star power. Plus you can also throw in some wild cars that could you imagine, you know, the Brooklyn brawler somehow winning the Royal Rumble and going to WrestleMania there were, it, it made a different story and it made the story more plausible to the viewing audience that, wow, anything can happen here. And it was a way to introduce new, new stars and create new issues.
1: So let's talk about putting together the actual card for the 98 Royal rumble, uh, on commentary, we've got Vince McMahon and Jesse Ventura, and that was sort of standard fare for the time. Did Dick have a relationship with Jesse Ventura? It feels like Jesse is a natural born TV
2: superstar. Sure. Jesse was doing movies at this point and Jesse was a bonafide star, man. He was a bonafide celebrity if you will, outside of the wrestling business. And Dick had worked with Jesse on Saturday night's main event and enjoyed working with Jesse. Jesse added some panache and star power to the team.
1: Talk to me about what sort of production notes uh, you may have had from Dick that day. Did you guys do a walkthrough earlier in the day? I know you've told us that Dick was sort of very hands-on with everything. What does that look like from a television production standpoint and his involvement? Royal rumble.
2: The only, the only thing that we even, uh, walked through, if all at all, if you want to call it a walkthrough was the Andre Hogan signing where we just set up the table in the ring and we decided what side Andre was going to be on and what side Hogan was going to be on. That's it. We flew in that day from Stanford. We chartered a plane and got in that day We got to the building probably about noon, one o'clock, had a very quick production meeting. And then Pat went and met with all of the talent that was in the Royal Rumble match. The other agents got their matches together and it was down and dirty. This was a bare bones crew. This was not even a full fledged TV crew because they had, uh, we were using Canadian stuff and stuff from Toronto And it wasn't a, a big full-fledged television taping, if you will.
1: So you said that you put together the show who ran the production meeting, you Vince or Dick?
2: No, Vince did at this time.
1: So when you put together the show, what does that mean? Exactly. Talk to us like we're third graders.
2: I wrote the show. I had all of the matches and all of the elements for the show. So I wrote out exactly what would go where and when slotted in the commercial breaks and the teases and and what have you, it's pretty much doing a lineup and deciding, okay, here's the breaks and writing all of that out the interviews and putting together the different spots that are in throughout the show. So, so it's pretty simple.
1: Did you actually put together the card or you just figured out where it would all fit on a television
2: format? Vince, Vince and Pat put together the card, and I'm the one that formatted it for TV.
1: Um, back then when you guys were doing interviews, cause there are several interview pieces in here and there's lots of other Gaga, so to speak. How much, if any of that was scripted, what did that look like? I know that it wasn't pages and pages of stuff that you get these days, but what did that look like back here in 88? Gino
2: Kerlin interview, Duggan winning rumble. That's about it. And then Duggan knew what he was supposed to talk about. Just talking about winning the rumble, you know, Hulk and Andre Hulk and Andre was the contract signing and Vince laid that out as far as what he wanted to see happen there. And the main thing with that was Andre reaching up and slamming Hogan's head into the table and dumping the table. So that was the payoff. That was, that was the most detail that was put into any of those promos or any of those pieces. Uh, who would have
1: been producing some of those interviews and stuff? So like you said, Doug, an interview with main gene, does he have an agent or a producer who sort of says, okay, Jim, here's kind of what we're looking for. You got 60 seconds. And we want to talk about, we want to hit these high points.
2: You got a promo after your match.
1: So pretty w- much how it probably would have went. W- what do agents exist for? If they're not doing anything at this point, are they just weed carriers or what? W- w- what are they there for?
2: No, the agents and producers, for the most part, especially in the live shows, are the ones that would get together with the guys, and they would relay the messages from the office, letting the guys know what who's going over, and, okay, here's your finish for tonight, and give the guys their finish and take it from there. Um, even then, it was you would hear stories about the old agents walking in, and Arnie Skolin would kind of walk in and he would look at one guy, give him a thumbs up and look at his opponent thumbs down. That was the extent of the agent's interaction. You're winning tonight, you're losing tonight. Figure it out. And then they would watch the matches and make sure nothing stupid happened.
1: So really the agent position at this in this era was more of a heat shield for Vince?
2: No, it was, it was the messenger. He was the one that was running the shows that night because when Vince didn't go to the shows, go to the live shows, um, that he was the one that was carrying out the messages, he was in charge of the show and deciding who or telling them who was going over for that night for TV. Vince would give them. Okay. Um, you've got the Islanders Islanders over, uh, powers and Roma. That's it. And then the agents figured it out. There's lots of rumor and innuendo that all of
1: the Saturday night's main event promos were heavily scripted by NBC. That's not the case here with USA with Dick.
2: That is not the case. We didn't have any NBC people or any of his, again, the fact that Dick Eversoll was involved in this purely coincidental and purely because Dick didn't have anything else to do and was looking for something to do and just came and hung out with us. Okay.
1: So he wasn't really running the show. He was just more there.
2: Correct. He was, he was sitting with me at gorilla and helping me, but he was really didn't have any official capacity. It wasn't, he wasn't getting a part of the show. He wasn't involved in a lot of the production, but he was going around and he would always help out where he could.
1: Gorilla has really become something that everybody in wrestling is familiar with, but it really has grown over the years. I mean, you see the setup they have now for TV. And It looks nothing like it did back in the day when it was a fucking folding table and a little monitor and a headset. Now it's like command central in there. When do you remember some of the responsibilities and duties for what happened in the gorilla position, sort of evolving and changing and becoming more than what it was back then?
2: Uh, probably when we started doing Monday night raw on a bigger scale and we started going with the big arenas, that gorilla position became much more important position on the show because it was the last, that was the last staging area that we had with talent before they went out live for the show. It was the last place to get any last minute production notes from the truck to the talent. And I was the one that was at gorilla for a long time. And I instituted, I would say a, a, most of the changes from the communication with the referees by putting the earpieces in the referees so that I could actually speak to them and they could get direct messages from me versus having to go through either a cameraman or the timekeeper for the cues. I could give them exact, you know, exact directions, um, having monitors at the gorilla position where I could see, have, the same thing the truck could see, I could see all of the cameras at gorilla versus just having one program monitor. Because then if you only have one program monitor, you're watching what everybody else is watching and I can't see what's happening with other people or in other angles. So I added a lot more camera angles that, and eventually I got the screen where I had all, I had program, I had preset and I had every camera that I could switch my own cameras on my own, uh, monitor. So, and then Vince wanted to be there. So Vince added his little station there where he could talk to the commentators directly. He didn't want to be in the truck. He wanted to be able to talk to talent, talk to the agent and talk to the commentators all in one place. So he ponied up a table next to, next to mine at gorilla. Let's talk about the
1: actual show itself. We start off with a match between Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and Ravishing Rick Rude. And Rick Rude is already in the ring when we see him here. Uh he's without his robe, he's without uh Bobby Heenan. There's no cut the music routine. Uh it's very bare bones as far as the presentation here. Uh what do you remember about the evolution of the Ravishing Rick Rude character and why was it important that he was the first star on this show?
2: Really and truly, we were looking for a good match and that was it. And feeling that Steamboat and Rude would set the pace for the night and have a really good match. You know, the evolution of Rick Rude took place slowly to where when Rick came in, he had just regular tights or regular trunks and he wasn't as colorful and flamboyant. So that evolution took place over several months and several years. And Rick was pretty, pretty brand new here at the time but a hell of a hand and we were looking for a good match to set the pace and open things up, but we had, God, I think this was a three hour show. So you only had so many matches and the matches had to be a little bit longer and you put two big stars in there, like rude and steamboat and felt that was the best way to open the show. At this
1: point, Rick Rude had been in the company five or six months. Uh, he came in. Uh, in the summer of 87 and he's taking on a guy who a year prior to this had been on top of the world. He won the match of the year in 1987 for his incredible match with the macho man for the intercontinental title. But as we recall, he asked for some time off. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit here and there, I guess we should touch on it briefly here, according to the rumor and innuendo, uh, after winning the intercontinental title, he asked for some time off to be with his wife, Bonnie, Because they were expecting their first son. Apparently Vince didn't think that was, uh, the right thing for business. So he had him drop the belt to the honky tonk man. And then he got his opportunity to take some time off. He makes it back in time for survivor series. Uh, He's going to be here, but then really right after WrestleMania four, he's a part of that tournament at WrestleMania four, not too long afterwards. He's out of the company. What was the relationship like with Vince and Steamboat at this time? It feels like there's a lot of tension in the air and something's building.
2: Yeah, it was strained. It was definitely strained. You know, Ricky wasn't happy and he wanted out. Vince wanted him full time. And Ricky, again, just having a brand new baby, he wanted to stay home and he wanted to see his son and he wanted more time off. And Vince wasn't looking for part-time players at this time. He wanted somebody to be there and make every town. And if I'm going to do something with you on TV and I'm going to invest the time on TV, then you've got to make the house shows. You've got to make all the appearances. Can't have part-time players that I'm investing television time in. And Steamboat was bitter about that. Ricky wasn't happy. I think at the same time that, especially during this time, Crockett was making overtures to steamboat and he's thinking that the grass is greener on the other side and ricky just wasn't happy and vince wasn't happy with him so it was tense it was a little tense and just strained during this period do you think at least in
1: vince's eyes that steamboat ever really recovered from asking for time off after becoming intercontinental champion it feels like every time he was involved with the company after that Vince may have been a little hesitant or reluctant to give him the big push.
2: No, I, you know, when he came back and was the dragon, God, we invested a ton of money in that gimmick and just trying to get him over to that next level. So I don't think that's the case, but at this time it was Ricky wanting to spend more time at home and continually asking for time off. And not wanting to commit fully. And Vince wanted full-time players that want to be out on the road, 60 days straight at a time. And that's what he wanted. I'm glad you mentioned it. You, you, uh, you mentioned the silly
1: dragon gimmick. Uh, he of course had been calling himself Ricky, the dragon steamboat for a long time, but when he comes back to you guys, a few years later, he's in this full-blown get up. If you're not an old-school fan and maybe you don't remember this, I encourage you to throw it in your Google machine. you got to see this. Whose idea is this look, the presentation, uh, the fire breathing, the whole deal, and how receptive is Ricky to that? It feels like something Vince McMahon would have had a ton of fun pitching.
2: Well, Vince loved it, and it was during a time that Vince felt that, you know, bringing Ricky back by God, you know, we have got to make him, if he's going to commit to this thing, we've got to make him more than just a wrestler. He's the dragon and dragons breathe fire. So if we had him come out and he's breathing fire, I want a fire breathing dragon, man, Ricky and I went Fort Lauderdale maybe. Uh, and we spent a week, with a traveling circus. Brian De Palma was the gentleman who taught Ricky how to breathe fire. And we did it in a parking lot where the great American circus was set up in Fort Lauderdale and Steamboat and I stayed at the hotel there. And every single day we would go to the parking lot of the circus and Steamboat would learn how to breathe fire. And that's how that gimmick came to be. He had the whole dragon outfit. Steamboat loved it. Steamboat absolutely loved it in the beginning. And every time, every single time I have seen Ricky since then, and I guarantee you the next time that I see Ricky, he's going to stop me and go, Hey, do you remember Brian De Palma in Florida when we were breathing fire? Because. (laughs) About the third time that, uh, De Palma is showing Ricky how to breathe fire and how to do the fire breathing gimmick, he's stressing, continually stressing. You got to watch the wind, how to watch the wind and and stressing safety and how important it is to be extra safe and careful because you could catch your face on fire. But the third time that De Palma did it, the wind shifted when he went to breathe the fire and came right back into Palma's face and and caught his own face on fire. Seamold looks at me. And says, this is the fire breathing expert. you guys want me to do this every night. I'm like, we're not going to do it outside. It'll be inside where we can control stuff a little bit better. But, uh, I thought the fire breathing stuff was great. Added an awful lot to the presentation of Ricky steamboat. So did he. And, uh, I thought it was a tremendous entrance back in the day.
1: It was a tremendous entrance. And, uh, it's interesting how these guys careers would sort of separate at this point, because a year from now, uh, Ricky, the dragon steamboat's going to win the world title from Ric Flair and he's not long for this WWF world. Meanwhile, Rick Rude's going to go on an incredible run here. And just a few years after this, be main eventing with the ultimate warrior here for the belt, this opening match on Royal Rumble goes 17 minutes or so, uh,
2: lots of rest holds in here too. Who would have been the agent for this match? I don't know who's particularly was the agent for this match, but here's, here's the issue with this match, watching it back. It was a house show match. And we, you know, you learn things as you go along when you're producing TV and it's post-production, you can edit and you can pull up and you can tighten a lot of things when you are doing it live. Obviously you don't have that luxury and guys get in a mindset when they are in house shows it's a little bit slower pace for the most part, and you will get a lot of rest holds and they're good. I'm going to put my time in, but I'm going to put my time in selling on the mat. And that's what this was. This was a house show match. And later on, and it probably took us several years to get to the point to where we could say, Hey guys, for pay-per-view, if you're on television, you got to be moving. There's got to be action. There's got to be something more happening here. And it was a good match not a good television match because it was slow and prodding and it was an old school house show match. And there's a big difference between house show matches and TV matches.
1: Uh, the finish comes when rude pulls the ref in front of steamboat as steamboats coming off the top of the flying body press, eventually rude puts steamboat in the backbreaker and the ref calls for the bell. So rude thinks he's won and uh, raises his arm, starts to head towards the back. And then it's announced that Nope, the winner by disqualification is Ricky, the dragon steamboat, sort of an old school finish here, uh, two of the all time greats in the opener, but maybe not the best way to keep everybody's
2: attention in a live special like this. No. And the, the execution of the announcement, the whole, the whole switch, man, rude was already to the back and you can actually see Pat Patterson coming out to tell rude. To go back in this, in this scene, when rude is walking back in the aisle and you see Pat in the aisleway and Pat's out there to tell Rick rude, go back, get back in the ring. It should have happened a lot faster with the referee getting up and. You know, they rang the bell and, and Howard assuming Rick rude, the winner. So you learn, I mean, this, this is a great show that we would go back and we would point to of what we learned from this live show. And one was Howard needs to know what the hell the finishes are on the matches. And they got to get to it quicker for television. It should have been done in the ring and gotten to a whole hell of a lot quicker.
1: Next up, we see Dino Bravo attempt to set a world bench press record of 715 pounds. Uh, it's announced that the world record at the time was 705 pounds. And I don't know why people had this fascination with lifting weights and wrestling, but this is something that the NWA did with the road warriors and the powers of pain, whose idea was this? What do you remember about it? And why did it take so fucking
2: long? Uh, huh. During this time, Dino Bravo was probably the strongest guy in the locker room and the boys. Being boys, they go to the gym every day and they're always working out. So they're always comparing. It's a competition. Hey, yo, bro, how much you press? You know, what do you bench? Dino Bravo allegedly was pressing over 600 pounds during this time. And a lot of the guys, everybody pretty much knew that Dino Bravo was the strongest guy there. 600 pound bench press is a tremendous feat. He got up, and I, I think he did close to 700 pounds one time. I don't think he ever did over 700, but he did like in the in the 660 or 670, extremely impressive, and one of the strongest human beings in the world. And that's great to do that in the gym when you're in there working out and everything. But Vince says, "Well, hell, you know, he's a strong guy. What if we set a new, you know, quote." bench press record and it was, you know, let's do 700, uh, 700 pounds. What's the record? I think it was something like 705 pounds. Well then we'll do seven fifteen. The problem. And I've done, I've done these a few different ways and I, and we learned a lesson when I did it with superstar Billy Graham or uh, I beg your pardon, Tony Atlas And Gino Hernandez in Houston, Texas, we put a bench press in the ring and we had the weights. Well, the ring gives it's a wooden base and it gives. So when you're lifting weights, it's not a good idea to be on any kind of base that is not solid concrete and have a solid foundation underneath it. You you don't want any give. You don't want any wiggle room. And when you do that, it adds weight so if you're bench pressing 200 pounds, it's going to feel like you're doing about 250. <sighs> this was painful to watch because Dino's not a good promo. His manager, Frenchy Martin, who is actually a pretty good promo, for some reason was just doing the French gimmick and we 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 and And Dino wasn't over. Frenchy wasn't over. And the weightlifting was a fart in church.
1: Well, Dino's trying to get some heat from the crowd and really trying to sell it and milk it, but it feels like the segment really, really drags who is being communicated with. If anybody does gene have a headset in here, who's giving them time cues because it feels like this goes several minutes longer than it probably should have.
2: I don't even know if Gene had an earpiece. I think it was Kevin Dunn That was on the floor that was queuing between Vince McMahon and, and Gene for which one to speak when, and Oakland is trying to keep it moving. Jet, thank God for Jesse Ventura, because at least Jesse kept some kind of interest and got the crowd going, you know, Dino doing the, I cannot do this. If the crowd is making noise and they were like, okay. <laughs> it seemed like they quieted down for him. And then Jesse trying to get people up and Vince was riling people up over where he was seated at the announced position. And the idea is you keep building and building and building to where finally he gets the last thing. And by the way, he was supposed to lift. He was supposed to quote, set the record. But when we got there, he couldn't do it. And you tell me what you what your takeaway was from it. What did what did you see when you looked at that uh, that set of weights on the bench? Did you see anything different? What do you mean? Okay, then I guess you didn't, because to me it was glaring. And yes, I knew, but we had oh, on the, the weight the big dummy weights. Yeah, yeah, and you know they were all spray painted together. They were all spray painted the same to be put in there, and we put them in the middle. But when we're looking at it, it's like, oh God, they just, st- to us, they stick out like a sore thumb to, to Vince and all the, uh, the muscle heads that were there. It was like, ah, oh, God damn. You have different, different colored weights all over the place in the gym. I'm like, well then let's spread it out a little bit. No, it's gotta be right here. So every weight that was announced, you had to subtract 180 pounds from. Okay. So while 715 pounds was the quote weight attempted, the real weight attempted was 435. And when he got there and they, they should have known (laughs) when he couldn't get the last, the last press up that he did before that, that, Hey guys, I don't know if this is, this is going to work the way that we want it to work or not. And thank God, Jesse was there to, to spot him as well. But being on that platform. Up there, that platform had a little bit of give to it and was a little wobbly. So Dino going in to do it and they cut it out, which I found hilarious because to me, it was most entertaining part of it. They cut out on the network, Vince laughing at Dino Bravo on the last, the last set when he couldn't get it. And so when Bravo goes up and he's trying to press the quote, 715 pounds and he can't get it up, Vince is like,
0: <laughs> Oh my God, he can't do it. He can't get it up. Oh my god, He didn't do it. He couldn't do it. Oh my God. Dino Bravo failed. He couldn't do it.
2: And I'm thinking, Oh my God, Vince, no shit. Um, but at the same time, you couldn't call that he did it because he didn't so horrible. You,
1: you said take 180 off, but then you said 435, 180 off is actually 535. Okay. So it's, it really was 535 on the bar or yeah. it was 435
2: because that's 280. Off. Uh, okay. You're right. Yeah. 535. I'm, like I do math. <laughs>
1: All right. Speaking of math, the glamor girls are going to take on the jumping bomb angels in a two out of three falls match. And we get lots of uh, questions over the years about the jumping bomb angels. And I know we talked about them a little bit on our survivor series 87 show, but people are really fascinated with the jumping bomb angels here. The first fall would see Judy Martin go ahead and get a pin in seven minutes. Uh, the second fall, Martin takes a fall with the sunset flip. And then the finish sees, uh, Martin go ahead and drop the final fall. So, and that happens by the way, with simultaneous drop kicks off the top rope, which we've just covered a little bit with the rockers and it being like one of their signature moves. Well, the jumping bomb angels were doing it here. I don't think that history has sort of remembered the jumping bomb angels as the innovators
2: that could have been. What'd you think of this match? I thought it was, (laughs) I'm sorry. I thought it was kind of long and boring. And especially when you watch the women today, it's, it's just more exciting. And the women back in this day, they had a completely different style. The jumping bomb angels coming in kind of blew that style up and they were able to do a lot of things that were extremely innovative that had never been seen before, especially in women's wrestling, much less in men's wrestling. And they did some incredible stuff. Problem was nobody, they didn't speak English. Nobody really knew anything about them other than they were from Japan. And that's the way everyone referenced them. Well, the jumping bomb angels from Japan, And, uh, Yamazaki from Japan, there was that treating the audience, in my opinion, as if they were just adolescents that didn't know, it it just was tough to watch. And, And I didn't think that it was, it was a good match, but I didn't think it was anything great that would hold anybody's attention today.
1: The jumping bomb angels here, of course, become your world tag team champions. They're going to drop those titles back, uh, in June, I believe. And then the following February. So a year and change from here, the women's tag titles are no longer going to be a thing. Do you think we'll ever see the women's tag titles be brought back? There's been lots of rumors that there's consideration for doing that these days.
2: I think that when the women get to the point where they can also maybe even have their own show and more focus put on it. Yeah. I think that the women's tag team championships could be a thing and people could get behind it.
1: I'll tell you what I can get behind our friends over at mattress firm. Uh, let's keep the ball rolling. Shall we? Everybody knows how important stretching is before an event. And so does mattress firm, except when it's your dollar. Your budget stretches further when you're shopping at America's Neighborhood Mattress Store. It's a home run, and you'll have a ball. You see, they're the head coaches when it comes to mattress expertise, but know this. They're more than just mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a bed. From adjustable bases to sheets to headboards to bedroom decor, they have you literally and figuratively
2: covered up like your favorite cornerback. Go to mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast to see what deals are happening. As I read this sentence to you, that's mattressfirm.com slash podcast. They even offer you a 120 night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120 night low price guarantee. So, you know, you paid the perfect price. Talk about a one, two punch, a knockout, if you will. Score big with a perfect bed. Head on over to mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast to get the play by play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow. mattressfirm.com slash podcast. So
1: then we see the highlights of Hulk Hogan versus Andre from WrestleMania 3. And this, of course, is leading us to the Hulk Andre contract signing for the main event show. Which is going to go down on February 5th, 1988. And we're actually going to cover on an upcoming episode here of Something to Wrestle with, Bruce Pritchard. Jesse gives his opinion here that Hulk's shoulder was down for the three count when he tried to slam Andre, and Andre fell on him. And I've always thought that was one of the really cool ongoing storylines. I know you weren't there for WrestleMania 3. But was that always the plan or was it just something that you thought you could build off of coming out of the event? Like, here's what happened. So let's talk about it.
2: Well, it happened and everybody was talking about it. So why not jump all over? It? And when Jesse was doing commentary at WrestleMania three, I think Jesse called it as a three count because it was so damn close. And I think a lot of people, I mean, I remember watching it and thinking that, Oh shit, they just switched the title. So it was hard to ignore, and Jesse had called it that night. And as a heel, why not point that out? It was good stuff. Well, it was good stuff. And um
1: this contract signing is something that I've looked forward to for a while. We we get lots of Hulk interviews, including one with Craig DeGeorge, where he responds to DBIC wanting to buy the world title. Uh what did Hulk say? Hell no.
2: It was Vince. You said,
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like,
1: Hulk said it, not Vince. I thought you had a whole brother. It. Hell no. Is
2: that better? No, no. Uh, I can't
1: do a good Hulk. It's kind
2: of, sur- when you get there, it's hell no.
1: kind of surprising in the day to see such a white meat baby face, say hell, but, uh, that's the response. Hell no. And then we get highlights of a response promo between Dibiase to George And Mr. Meat Sauce himself, Virgil. And then we see the uh, highlights from Saturday night's main event where Andre attacked Hulk from behind when Hulk was defending his world title against King Kong Bundy. The Andre headbutts from behind are maybe my favorite Andre move ever.
2: He had to hold himself up by holding the head in front of him and coming back. And so that he didn't fall down, had to make contact with the head. And Vince liked it because he loved the visual of Andre's huge hands around someone's throat. And then we go to another set of highlights
1: with DiBiase asking Andre, if he'll deliver the world title to him, Andre says he will. Then we get to the contract signing and it feels like Hulk Hogan may have borrowed his pants here from
2: you. Is that right? Yeah, those are my nice little baby blues that I wore. They kept, kept my legs all nice and cozy and warm. They had to be negative.
1: cracking everybody up. Uh, Ted, Ted's laughing when Hulk gets in the ring. And of course, I'm sure he's laughing in storyline, but he may have also been laughing at these fucking pants. Uh, where do you think Hulk wears this uh, workout belt? Is this something he's sporting to the grocery store? Like if we saw the Hulkster down at Kroger, is he pushing a cart dressed like this? Absolutely.
2: He went through airports like that. (laughs) He did. This was that, that, okay. You're looking at Hulk's everyday wear. This is, this is how he went through the airports. (laughs) This is how he, he went to the Piggly Wiggly, uh, everywhere he went. This is exactly how he dressed. Sometimes, sometimes, but not very often. He may just wear a a regular t-shirt, but not very often. Those arms had to come out. A regular t-shirt couldn't contain those pythons. Lots
1: of great heel stuff here by Ted DiBiase. Andre's taking his time. Eventually he signs and Ted says, now that you've signed the contract, uh, Andre put your stamp of approval on it. And Andre stands up and Hulk quickly jumps up too. And then Ted tells him to put his official stamp of approval on it. And then Hulk goes after him and Andre grabs him, slams his head into the table, turns it over on him. And is this maybe the first time you guys did a contract signing in the ring? This kind of became the norm for you guys and something you did a lot of over the years, but is this the first one?
2: It was a first one and it, and it was a big deal. And it's another thing that we learned is not to use a, uh, a sturdy wooden table <laughs> as well, because it hurt like hell and Andre dumping the damn thing over on him, but it became kind of the go-to when you need a segment with two guys that were going to be working for the championship, uh, let's have a contract signing in the ring. So it just kind of became the go-to, but it was, uh, it was a stiff, ugly little table that we used in here. Nice, solid wood furniture. The gallery furniture would probably sell you.
1: Was there any concerns about Andre's health at this point? Obviously he's not in a great way. Um, but physically, is there any concern that he might not be able to perform much longer? Let's get as much of him as, as out of him as we can right now.
2: Well, that, that has always been the idea that they wanted to get as much out of him as they could, uh, hoping that his back was going to hold up. But during this time, he was holding up fairly well and felt that he could get a couple of matches. He wasn't going to be going on the road every night and working but to use him as that attraction that he always should have been used as. There wasn't a whole lot of fear that he wouldn't be able to do that. So he was moving around. Okay. At this point to get him through the next couple matches. Let's,
1: um, let's skip the Royal rumble match and we'll come back to it. And let's instead talk about the last match that happens on the show, which is a two out of three falls match between the Islanders and the young stallions. The Islanders win in two straight falls. And both falls go around seven minutes. And in the first fall, they pull the top rope down. So Paul Roma goes over and he injures his knee and is counted out. Uh, the second fall sees them jump on Jim powers for a while. And then finally Roma's tagged in and they beat on his knee. And eventually Haku makes Roma submit to a half Boston crab. What's the psychology behind putting this match on last.
2: <sighs> to make sure, first of all to make sure that we got all of the Royal rumble match on and right. we didn't know how to really time it. It was all new to me. So I'm, I'm trying to think I'm trying to put it together and I had been timing shows since the time I was 12, but it just was, it was overwhelming and, and Dick wanted to, to put it on next to last. There was always that philosophy especially with Dick because he programmed late night television, you get your best stuff out early in the show and you end, you can end with not such an important thing at the end of the show because you're fighting sleep. Well, that, that's the late night philosophy. And if you watch any late night programming, that's what they do. That's why they put the stars on first on uh, Kimmel and Fallon and all that. That was a philosophy that, that I kind of went with here. And when I was given the, the order and I was given the order by Vince, that's what we did here. And the idea was no matter how much time we had left at the end, that was how much time that the tag team match was going to have, uh, was a match just designed. It should have been a one fall squash match with the Islanders and them, but they had a little bit more time and we, we got it knocked out, (laughs) but we didn't know Like, unfortunately didn't really know until we got there, how much time they were going to have for that last match.
1: Well, and we didn't know because we were going to be doing the Royal rumble and who knows how long that's going to take. And we're going to encourage you to fire up your WWE network right now and find that match and we're going to actually give you some alternate commentary and just, uh, reminisce a little bit down memory lane. So if you haven't already fire up your WWE network. Pull up the 1988 Royal Rumble, and uh, we're going to give you a time cue to press play. And next week, we want to go ahead and tell you, we're going to be covering the main event with Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, the NBC primetime special. Don't you dare miss that. It's got one of the best angles in the history of professional wrestling, and that's what we've got in store for you on Friday, February 2nd. And let's go ahead and give everybody the poll topics right now for February 9th. You'll be able to vote. On Twitter. That's right. We're bringing the polls back to Twitter. So go vote right now at Pritchard show. And you've got four different topics to vote for. Uh, Bruce, are you ready for me to run through these topics? Go run through them. Daddy poll topic. Number one, and this is for February 9th. Brock Lesnar is poll topic. Number one, arguably the best Rook year in the history of the business. What might we talk about if Brock Lesnar wins the poll?
2: We're going to talk about the question that Vince McMahon asked him the first time that Vince met Brock and Brock's answer that made Vince go, he's going to be a
0: star.
2: And, uh, that first year. And also we'll get into the WrestleMania. I believe it was WrestleMania 18 in Seattle, that match where he damn near broke his neck with Kurt angle. And, uh, Can't forget his last match in the WWF or WWE for that run against Goldberg in Madison square garden. Ugh,
1: Uh, Is right. And Goldberg in the WWE is poll topic. Number two, he's, uh, maybe the biggest superstar in WCW when they're on top. And now he comes to the world wrestling federation. What might we talk about if we cover Goldberg in the WWE?
2: whose idea it was to bring Goldberg in what the original plans were and how they almost got changed to me is some of the funniest stuff that ever happened. And of course, his last match with none other than Brock Lesnar. So Brock Lesnar probably headed towards the WrestleMania
1: main event this year. Goldberg going into the hall of fame. So there are your poll topics one and two poll topic. Number three, the undertaker. Of course, you can check out our archives to hear 93, 94, but we're going to keep it going as poll topic number three is Undertaker 95, 96, and 97. What might we cover, Bruce?
2: What more needs to be said about The Undertaker? Well, a whole hell of a lot more needs to be said because during this time he was WWF champion and so many different things going on, but also getting set up to the evolution that would then become the American Badass.
1: I'm excited about it. Undertaker has been uh, one of our most requested topics as has number four. Kane will cover his debut in 97, all of 98,
2: 99, and even 2000. What might we cover if Kane wins the poll? Well, you get to hear the story. Everybody's been talking about the creation of Kane and all of the wild and wacky avenues that we could have gone down, some of which we did. And uh, I think it's one of the most interesting and greatest stories, uh, Undertaker and Kane. I don't know how you pick them on this one, because the great story in kane a longevity career you never would have imagined. We certainly didn't. Undertaker. Every year was a great year. And then Brock and Goldberg, two of the biggest stars the business has ever seen. Damn. Who's winning?
1: Well, I don't know, but you do. And you get to decide over on Twitter. It's at Pritchard show. Throw your vote down. Brock Lesnar, Goldberg in the WWE, Undertaker 95 through 97 or Kane through 2000. It's going to be a big poll. One of our biggest ever and it's back on Twitter, at Pritchard Show. Go vote right now. And the winner we're going to cover on February 9th. Now, hopefully, you have your WWE network fired up, and we're going to encourage you to go ahead and watch along with us. The time cue you want to pull up for Royal Rumble 1988 is 1 hour, 17 minutes, and 32 seconds. That's 1 hour, 17 minutes, and 32 seconds. If you need to hit pause on us for a minute while you find that, Go ahead and do so now, and uh, that'll give you a minute to figure this out. We would encourage you to press mute on your network as well, and Bruce and I are going to try to make you laugh. He's going to do some fun impressions for you, and we're going to try to be over the top and jazz up this original 1988 Royal Rumble. Bruce, are you ready? I am ready. Give us a countdown and tell us when to press play. And again, your time cue is one hour, 17 minutes and 32 seconds.
2: Okay. I'm going to say three, two, one play. And when I say play hit your button, here we go in three, two, one play. And we're opening with a wide shot here.
1: Who would have set the cameras up? Uh, who was handling all of that from, for you guys back in those days,
2: Nelson Swegler and Kerwin Silfies. Nelson Swigler was the production manager and Kerwin Silfies was the top notch director who would have gone and, set up the camera angles for all of these shows and what have you.
1: I know it's a little thing, but I sure do love when Howard Trinkle was the, um, the ring announcer and he's using the long cord with a cable. Well, I mean the, the long microphone with a cable, not the wireless deal. I don't know why, but it makes it nostalgic for me.
2: This contest, the very first inaugural Royal Rumble. The rules of this contest are as follows Two men start, and every two minutes thereafter, another competitor will enter the Royal Rumble. The match will continue until only one man remains. The only way to win this match is to throw your opponent over the top row. Ladies and gentlemen, Brett, the Hitman Hart. heart. Well, it's sort of fun
1: to uh, look at Brett's early gear here, all pink and black, but no hearts. None of the other stuff that he would do later. He's not yet doing the merchandise shades. Whose idea was, uh, turning Brett's shade gimmick into a piece of merchandise because him giving it to a kid and all that. That's pretty old school. Good stuff.
2: Well, it started when they came out and Brett always wore sunglasses. So they came out with some gimmick sunglasses for him, uh, to wear that they could sell and Brett just started doing it because every night he had these sunglasses, they were selling them. And if they saw somebody in the crowd getting them a little kid and he would always sign them, he always had a nice note on the glasses and sign them. And then, uh, it would help sales somewhat.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. And we're starting off with, uh, two guys that Vince, according to the rumor and innuendo had a lot of confidence in with Tito Santana and Bret Hart, there's lots of talk that over the years, there was discussion that one of these guys was going to be sort of the next top guy. How far did any of those talks ever get with Tito? Of course, we know Brett went on to have a big run with the WWF's new generation. What were the, uh, rumor and innuendo plans for Tito Santana at any point?
2: Well, Tito was definitely in consideration because we were looking for something different than what had been done in the past. And we, and specifically Hulk Hogan, we were looking for a different type of champion and Vince wanted somebody that he could rely on that would have good matches during that time. He was thinking about, you know, we got to get away from the spectacle and maybe we need to go back to selling wrestling and felt that Tito would deliver every night. Plus you add the fact that Tito being Hispanic that was going to open up a new market as well for him. And he felt that was a plus for Tito.
1: I'm pretty excited, uh, that we're finally getting to cover this because I think everybody regard everybody, my age, thanks to the Royal rumble as really like the number two show. And I know you would say that SummerSlam and most people, uh, within the company have all said it was SummerSlam. But for me, Royal rumble was appointment television, man, because, You guys pitched it to where anybody had a chance to win. Was there ever any consideration to there being like an upset and there being, you know, somebody who you never
2: imagined being the guy, being the guy. Almost every year, (laughs) almost every year, there would be some kind of a suggestion of, of who the hell could win. And wouldn't it be crazy if, you know, so-and-so won? and for example, you know, the natural butch reed. This son of a bitch was over in Florida. Let me tell you right now.
1: <laughs> oh, you've got to be listening to our shows in the archives to get, why well, that's so funny. Butch Reed is uh, a guy who would go on to team up with Ron Simmons and the NWA and WCW as doom. But here there was a lot of talk that maybe he was going to be a guy figured in for an intercontinental title run, but then he missed a shot
2: and everything sort of changed. Right. Yeah. And Butch kind of could be one of those guys that could cop an attitude and hold on to it for a long time. So Butch could be somewhat difficult at times. I loved him to death because I had known him for so long and I had become accustomed to the mood swings. So for me, it was just another day with Butch.
1: The uh, crowd here looks a lot different than the crowd these days. There's no signs and, uh, there's, there's not tons of t-shirts in the crowd. When did but you you do see like the foam fingers and the WWF hats? When did the merchandising really start to take over for the company?
2: Well, got it. You know, during this time it was red hot too, but it was just a different time. Man, when Steve Austin, Stone Cold Steve Austin and Austin 316 exploded, the NWO also helped that as well. Everybody wanted to wear their colors, if you will. During this time, it was more of a geared towards kids. And, uh, you, you know, you can see here, we missed the countdown on Nightheart's <laughs> entrance here. So we, we wanted to have a countdown every, at least the last 10 seconds, but everybody's looking back because they see Nightheart coming out, but they didn't get a countdown with it. And this was a learning curve. Our first Royal rumble where you kind of go, Oh shit. Well, forgot that one. Let's hope we don't do it again.
1: It's sort of uh, interesting, too, that it feels like a lot of these early rumbles were a lot like the early uh, war games, where you just knew the heels were always going to get the advantage, right? The heels always win the, t- the coin toss in the war games, and it always becomes a 2 on one heels and babyfaces. And that's sort of what we're setting ourselves up for here, where it is every man for himself, but the heels naturally get an opportunity to gang up on the
0: babyface. And here,
1: it's poor Tito Santana. Look at him,
0: look at at him up, Bret Hart going to work now on the midsection of Tito Santana. Oh my, what a, look at that, look at that, Jesse. It
2: just made sense. And you had all these heels out there and you got one baby face. He gets to fight from underneath and it's a legal triple team. And when you're laying out the rumble, you want to look for all those instances that you can get some strange combinations and put your baby face in jeopardy. Got the clock back up, as you see, and that helps definitely because the people in the arena now know, oh my God, somebody's coming and people at home can count down and are ready to see who's next.
0: Ah, oh, check the snake! Check the snake coming down! Things are going to change now! Oh, my! Look at him move! Ah, oh, ah, oh, And out goes Butchery. The natural is eliminated by the snake, man! Oh, yeah!
1: So those are good times. Fun little note in history then. Your first ever Royal Rumble. Butch Reed is the first person eliminated. Jimmy Hart going nuts here and I've always found it funny that uh he he I feels like Jimmy and Bobby are like two of the hardest working dudes on the roster in this era because they've got so many guys that they're out here with. D- did they get paid? per night or based on a match, or if they had five matches, did they get paid more than if they had two?
2: They got, let me put it this way. They got paid better than they would have. If they only had one match, if they had several and they would, they would get, they would get good money. Jimmy Hart was, oh my God. Not only was he out with every match, he had a different outfit for every single wrestler that he managed. Right. And he had such commitment that he would do that and he would carry around two, three bags at a time, checking them in a time when most guys were just carrying around one and being stinky and didn't really care what they looked like we're in the same trunks every night. Jimmy Hart showed commitment.
1: It's worth mentioning too that a lot of this is happening before bags have wheels. Which yeah. feels like, you know, it shouldn't even be a sentence. But these days, you know, you've got spinner hard side cases. That was not the case, man. Guys were carrying stuff with duffels and this never gets, uh, comfortable for me. It's always uh, weird to see Harley race in a WWF ring. And I know that he was there and, and had a good run, but I've always just associated him with the NWA. So even though I know he's, he's coming out, it's still weird to see Harley in a WWF ring for me.
2: It, it really, and truly is for me because for whatever reason, and I say this because I'm in Texas and Harley's in Missouri. Uh, he felt old in the WWF and and not that he was old. It just felt old. And maybe it was because he was dying the hair that way. And I just kind of, uh, it wasn't the Harley race that I knew and remembered, but still he was, he was Harley race man. one of the toughest son of a bitches ever to lace up a pair of boots.
1: You know, what's great too, is, is I agree you know, it feels and, and looks old, uh, for him to be here, by the way, he, as we're watching him right here, he is 44 years old. Yeah. So exactly. He's four years younger than triple H is right now. He's hey, he's, he's three years older than, or four years older than AJ styles. It's just hard to, time is such a weird thing. And here comes uh one half of the killer bees. Killer bees are something we haven't talked a lot about here on the show. Uh, if there was going to be a split of the killer bees at at any point with Brunzel and Blair, which one do you think would have had a better singles run with you guys?
2: I think that Brunzel would have had the better singles run. And what makes you, what makes you favor him? I don't know. I just, because. Jim just kind of had that that attitude that people could have really gotten behind as a babyface I and that's probably the next question. I think that Brunzel would have been the baby face and that Blair would have been the heel because Brian is the natural heel. And uh Jim Brunzel is just natural baby face. But I just saw a lot more Brunzel uh, in singles competition. Even though he was known as a tag team guy, I think that he would have excelled in that realm.
0: Look at him now. Jake the seat. Tito Santana going to work now on the hitman, Bret Hart. Oh my, what a maneuver. He's hitting him with a fist, McMahon.
1: Did um did the guys have a conversation about I mean, obviously they know when they're going out and who's coming in and all that. And you've told us before how a match like this is booked. I don't know that you really broke it down as much here, but they're all given time cues based
2: on you go out after this guy comes in type deal, right? Correct. That's, that's how they knew when the next guy was going out. It's when this guy comes in, uh, and if you wanted the elimination to be right before the next entry, then you go, okay, this guy comes in, you got two minutes to get so-and-so out. So that was their cues. And plus we had referees down there. If they got lost, the referees all knew the order and what needed to happen. But the easiest way, and the only way that we really had to communicate with them was the next guy going out into the match.
1: It's been, uh, interesting to s- go back and watch this because you see how small wrestling really is. Sometimes you've got Jim, the anvil night who's married into to Brett Hart's family and. On the other side of the ring, you've got Jake, the snake Roberts in there with Sam
2: Houston. It really is a <laughs> wrestling's really a small world. Is it not? <laughs> yes, it is. And of course, Sam Houston and Jake brothers. So it's, it's a little bit incestuous and, and it's a lot of second, third, fourth generation, not a lot of fourth, but a lot of uh, second and third generations coming around right now. At this point
1: was, um, yeah, I mean, I guess they are the, he, Sam Houston is with, uh, baby doll,
2: right? Yes. They're still married at this point. And, and Sam had been with the company roughly six months here so you see dangerous. Danny Davis coming down to the ring. Was there any sort of, um, concern when,
1: you know, a guy from this company is married to someone from Crockett, you, know, you guys are in like a, a big, battle Royal yourselves of the world wrestling federation and Crockett promotions. I mean, it's the Genesis of this show even happening. And here you've got a guy who's married to someone down there. Is there any concern that maybe there's going to be some back channel communication in the locker rooms?
2: Well, I I don't think baby doll was working for him at this time because they had been Sam and baby doll had both been working for bill Watts. And when Crockett purchased bill Watts, uh, they were both let go. So I don't think baby doll was there. Oh my, you know, and I don't, you you listen to Vince and Jesse's commentary on this and they're just so all over the place because they're not really sure (laughs) what the hell that they're calling from a match standpoint and trying to call a, about a Royal is, is not the easiest damn thing in the world to call.
1: Maybe did wind up going back to Jim Crockett in 88, but there's rumor and innuendo out there that she actually uh, trained and tried to become a women's wrestler for you guys. Do you remember baby doll having a tryout or having some interest in joining
2: your women's division? I remember a tryout at some point, but I don't remember. It didn't go on any further than that. Boris
1: is a guy we have not talked about a lot on the show and he just slides into the ring here. Any good Boris stories you could
2: tell us? Oh, big Jim Nelson. You know, Boris was a product of the Jim Crockett promotion. And he was somebody that had been down there working with Sergeant Slaughter as private Nelson and private Nelson, Don Carnoodle, and all those guys. Jim was a hell of a hell of an amateur and a hell of a good guy had the head, the size of a Carl DeMarco. His head is absolutely gigantic, but when we were looking for a Russian figured shave his head, he'd make a perfect Russian, but you couldn't ask for just a, like a sweetheart of a guy, you know. like Casio's just one of those really, really nice guys. That's what Jim Nelson was old Boris Zoukov. Wonderful, wonderful guy. So I don't think he had an enemy
1: when you were talking about, um, you know, the way these are booked and that, you know, you come in when this guy goes out and blah, 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 was there any sort of discussion during the day about, Hey, here's a spot where we could tease over in the corner and I can do this move with you. Are they sort of walking through this at all or just having conversations in the back or is this all just, we'll
2: figure it out pretty much for this one was we'll figure it out. And there were guys probably that talked about spots in the back, didn't walk through anything, didn't go through anything like that. It was probably just talked about in the back and we'll figure it out when we get into the ring other than eliminations and how guys were going to get eliminated that was probably the only thing that was really discussed for the most part. And here, one thing we asked them not to do was do traditional battle Royal, just ha ha installing Gaga stuff. Cause a lot of times guys will pinch and play ha ha in the back.
1: So this is kind of uh, interesting. We've got two guys coming out at once here. Uh, and I guess they're arguing over who's supposed to be in next and whose spot this is.
2: Yeah, because the, the spot was in English. And of course, Nikolai Volkov being a Russian, when they yelled the spot, it was, what are you talking about? That is my turn now to go into the ring. I go into the ring. So it was a little haha spot that Pat had booked in there to make people wonder what in the hell is going on. Give the commentators, obviously Volkov confused and the referees trying to let him know it's not your turn just yet. You need to get out as his comrade is being eliminated out of the ring. Don Morocco is a guy that a lot
1: of old school fans who listen to our show absolutely love, you know, and I think a lot of people still remember him as an intercontinental champion, but also for his stuff with Mr. Fuji, um, on the old Titan show, you got any good Morocco stories. It feels like his end to wrestling is a pretty unusual one.
2: Don Morocco was, was a beach bum in Hawaii he was a surfer, but he he was a hell of an athlete and he came in first, he came in uh, over to Florida and Eddie Graham loved him. And one of the reasons, so I've heard, I'll probably get, uh, jumped and corrected on this by Jerry Briscoe, but in his early days, Don had long hair and looked an awful lot like Jack Briscoe. So when Don came into Florida, they they felt that that was a good fit because he looked like Jack, he had a tremendous body, but Morocco was a top guy everywhere he went. And in my opinion, Don Morocco is the guy that made Roddy Piper and put Roddy Piper over the top as a heel commentator. And just as a heel in Georgia championship wrestling back in the day, he just was that good of a heel and every, everywhere that he went, um, Morocco got over, but Vince saw him as a baby face. God, look at him. He's a rock.
1: Uh Nikolai Volkoff in the ring now, and you do a fantastic. Oh, look at the bump that Harley took. Ass over tea kettle is what you old timers
2: like to call that, right? Exactly. Beautiful bump by the king. I'll just dump me over. I'll move. You have a, a
1: phenomenal uh version of Nikolai Volkov singing. Would you like to share that with everyone?
0: Oh, lady, lady, da, the bay at your bay, sister, Jay, my crotch at your eat my crotch
1: Never gets old. Uh Jake the Snake is uh on camera here and we see those boots that are just iconic. Do you know where Jake had those boots made? Uh, snake boots are us. There you go. It feels like Jake was also famous for having pretty visible lifts in his boots. How big of a deal were lifts in wrestling?
2: (laughs) You know, what always got me more than anything was the guys that wore the lifts that didn't need the lifts like Jake, the snake Roberts, Jake, the snake Roberts is huge, man. He's a big, tall guy, but yet he's got 42 inch lifts on there. And seriously, his lifts have got to be. Three inches, and he's probably what six five, six six, six
1: seven yes. in real life. I mean, he's yeah, he's taller than me, and 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 that's not. And here comes a uh, hacksaw, Jim Duggan, getting into it in the uh, aisleway here with Harley Race. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about hacksaw, but he comes into the company uh, as a big player for Watts and a big burly brawler, and. He of course is going to go on to win this match and feels like they could be sort of priming him for a run as a top guy. How does the hacksaw and the two by four thing come to be?
2: Well, Vince was looking something different for him. when hacksaw initially came in before his little altercation with the Sheik and the New Jersey state police, uh, Duggan was brought in as kind of a USA grandstanding guy and someone that could hopefully, and eventually Replace Hulk Hogan as the top baby face. And that was kind of the hopes that not replace, but supplement Hulk as the top baby face and Duggan was over, man. There was nobody better. And just Jim coming in here now, getting in the corner, uh, with Bret Hart, the two by four was something that he used that became a part of what he did, but it was kind of just a, a mistake that added. We were able to grow upon. And outlaw Ron bass coming out right now. And and a bass, another one who was over huge in Florida. So you got Butch Reed and Ron, I'm telling you, if this Royal Rumble were held in Florida, fuck all those main eventers.
1: It is sort of interesting that, um, you don't really have your tippy top guys here in this match, but of course we know the Royal Rumble would go on to feature all the top guys, but Jake Roberts is obviously super over. Um, Bret Hart is going to be world champion before you know it. Was the idea here this sort of a coming out party and, and a way to elevate some underneath guys and sort of help them level up?
2: this was this was let's see how this match does this is what this was exactly and put guys that are on the card that we can get in there, have it be interesting, get dug and over in a strong way. But you notice, you know, Brett has been in there since the very first. And we kept the workers in there for a long time that could go and do different spots with people. But, uh, it was a hodgepodge. It was really a battle Royal with different rules. Have you heard a friend of the show, Luke
1: Gallows, describe a battle Royal like this? I have not Help me out. He he calls it exchanging forearms with the good brothers because (laughs) (laughs) a battle Royal If you're doing commentary on a lot of them, it's forearm, 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 forearm.
2: Yeah. And then old B Brian coming on in and, uh, looks like caught Brett with a low (laughs) smile, a low shot there. The Brett looks like what the fuck? I'm actually, you hit me in the nuts. You son of a bitch and Brett down for the count, kind of selling in the corner and you can tell immediately because nobody's going near him that Okay, Brett's hurt. Trying to get up and get his breath there is a uh, thank god Blair is now trying to get anvil over. So Brett comes over and says, "Okay, receipt motherfucker. Go ahead, Jim." <laughs>
1: Years ago, the Iron Sheik would go on Howard Stern and and he got pretty famous for this, for cutting promos about B-Brian Blair and what he wants to do with him and blank him in his blank and you know the whole deal when when iron Sheik comes out starts making these ridiculous statements on howard stern and everywhere else does that make its way through the office and everybody's sort of laughing about that
2: yeah people heard about it but it was just chic being chic and at that time people were kind of feeling sorry for him because they felt that you know somebody was getting him either pilled up or drugged up and drunk and setting him loose on Howard Stern just to kind of watch and see what he's going to say and hear what the hell he's going to say. And maybe I humble you Bubba and just take your, break your back. I blankety blank you in your blank Bubba. Ah,
1: fuck you. Jabroni. I don't know why, but you blankety blanket and then say, fuck you. Jabroni. That tickles me. <laughs> uh, Hillbilly Gym eliminates, um, the anvil, Neidhart, it, God. It, we, we can't let night go off camera without you at least doing a stew heart for us, describing anvil.
2: There, that big, yeah uh, the big rhino bastard, There, uh, he's going to get that center. You can't lift the big bastard. He's so goddamn big. I don't, I, I don't know the big rhino. He's, he's a tough bastard. i tell you that there. Yeah
1: did any of the guys uh, in the ring right now have a reputation for being someone who was, uh, a little stiff to work
2: with a little snug. Uh, let's see. No, actually, actually every one of them, every single one of those guys in there is a working son of a gun. Nobody, nobody, Doug, you know, Duggan of, of the tough guy reputations, I would probably say Duggan and Morocco at the top of that list, as far as tough guy reputations, but not difficult to work with or stiff in the ring that nobody wanted to work with them.
1: Uh, out next, Mr. Dino Bravo, uh, after the failed lift, we talked about the lift earlier. Was there any ribbing, uh, on the square backstage amongst the guys after that lift segment?
2: Oh God. Yes. He got ribbed unmercifully (laughs) because he, everybody had seen him do it in the gym and they knew, oh my, Sam Houston, God, but everybody had seen Dino do this in the gym and they knew he could do it, but under pressure and on TV, the fact that he didn't do it. And again, that's great for a heel as we discussed last week to fail. You can make any excuse that you want to make for him because.
0: They're a heel motherfucker, put him in a box and he'll be over all over again.
2: So Dino failing was good for the character, but not necessarily good for his ego. Um, why was the
1: uh, decision to go with 20 guys here as opposed to 30? I, I know over the years you guys experimented with a 40 man version of the Royal Rumble, but I think all of us have sort of gotten accustomed to it being a 30 man, but here the first time it's 20, what was the thinking of 20 rather than 40?
2: That was usually the traditional, believe it or not. That was usually the big number of the battle Royals participants. Oh my God. 20 men in one ring and just kind of airing on the traditional side. Oh, good God. Ah, Okay. You want to ask that question again about anybody in the ring that's extra stiff that nobody wanted to work with? Of course,
1: we're talking about the old ult- Bret Hart's been eliminated. Of course, he was in there first. Uh, he had the longest tenure in this match, of course, lasting almost to the very end. And Ultimate Warriors out, and he is uh, going to become the Intercontinental Champion later this year at SummerSlam, the very first SummerSlam. At this in point, this though. One- did you guys have any idea how hot warrior was going to be for you?
2: No, he was, he was still relatively pretty brand new. And this, this was just, let, let's let see how the hell he does with everybody else. And we're still testing the waters here. Now, if you notice, did that feel like two minutes to you? No. Yeah. See, that's what we call Titan time. And when we realized, holy cow, if we do all of these at two minutes and, and we realized a little earlier, but if we do all of these at two minutes, by the time that we get to the end, we won't have any time for the tag match. that was left at the end. So we just started shortening them up. And when warrior ran out of, uh, any offensive moves to do <laughs> get gang out there, they're lost. Dave on uh,
1: Facebook asked a great question. What happened to Rick Martell for this match? It's strange that Tito's in here, but not Rick.
2: Well, you know, I have told this story many times and as I watched it and went back, I realized that I was incorrect. It was not Rick Martell in this match that we forgot to get out. It was actually Bret Hart, but, um, Martell just wasn't, wasn't around here and looking for, uh, different things for Martell to do. And I think he was probably booked on the other show.
1: I know you guys are running another house show in, uh, Nova Scotia, but what's the thinking in booking this show? In this match in Hamilton,
2: because Hamilton was a market where we had done TV before we knew it, the, the, uh, towns had already been booked when we decided to do the television special for USA. So we looked at which one was going to be more friendly and Hamilton, definitely a lot more friendly because we had cameras and we had all the equipment right there in Toronto that we had used before for maple leaf gardens versus Halifax. I mean, come on, um much easier commute and much easier to do.
1: Uh, Mike on Twitter wants to know, uh, or on Facebook, why weren't some of the guys who were on the house show like demolition or Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake switched over to be in a TV spot here. Do you think they had already been advertised in another market?
2: Well, yes, they had, it had been advertised as Nikolai Volkov gets eliminated. They had been advertised in the other market and this was I don't know how to say this without sounding straight. This wasn't like this big event. As, as, as I said earlier, it was all about Andre and Hulk and the signing of the next one-on-one match that the rest of the matches didn't mean anything. There were matches on the card. So Vince felt we had plenty of star power here. And when you look at it really and truly for the time Duggan Morocco gang, uh, jyd those are all huge names that were big names in the wwf at the time well um when we're talking about the royal rumble here
1: and out we see goes danny davis um we're going to set an all-time television record 8.2 is the rating here which I think at that point is the highest viewed wrestling program in cable TV history, an 8.2. When that rating comes down, are you guys just fucking over the moon with that?
2: I was, (laughs) (laughs) because I could say that was during time I was doing all the cable programming and I could hold my hands up in the air and go, Oh, I set a record. I set a record. Um, you know, it was, it was a Sunday night. It was, it was what it was. And it was a record that held for a long time. So I was very proud of that to Vince rating ratings. Weren't that big of a deal to them.
1: Well, I mean, it had to be to Dick Ebersol, right? I mean, when that rating comes down, it's high fives around USA, right?
2: Yeah, they were probably, they were happier than we were. Like I said, Vince ratings, weren't that big of a deal. It was cable TV. It was like, okay, great. Then they will be happy when we re- renegotiate, keep us on the air because we are bringing them ratings, but all of our shows, primetime, all of our shows were rating successes on USA and the highest thing on the network. So this was just another one.
1: Was there ever any consideration to someone besides Hacksaw Jim Duggan winning this? And if so, what were those names?
2: Oh, uh, there's one in the ring right there. Uh, Morocco and Jake, the snake, both to win the thing, but Duggan was probably, the biggest star that needed that boost and needed to get up to that next level. So Jim was pretty much once it was decided on, it was going to be Jim, but, uh, Morocco and Jake, the snake were both considered for it. I know this is
1: live, but how many seconds delay is it here for the company? is there a seven second delay?
2: I think it was, uh, either a seven or a 12 second delay. So there was a delay though. Yes. So when you guys are
1: sort of, in the gorilla position backstage, we're counter-programming the Crockett pay-per-view bunkhouse. What, um, is there a monitor where you guys are seeing what's going on on that one? Oh, hell no. Okay.
2: No, we, that, that was a pay-per-view and we didn't, we just were taking care of our business. And I don't think that we were sophisticated enough in 1988 to be able to get a I don't know, did they even have direct TV in nineteen eighty-eight? No. Cause that's how they do it now. So they yeah, I don't even think that they were uh able to get it in the building.
0: Oh my dug it down. Being double teamed by the one back gang and the world's strongest man, Dino Bravo,
2: who couldn't lift the seven hundred and fifteen pounds. You know, and gang here, man, gang wa- was another one who was a top guy. And, you know, would later on go on to become the Alabama dream, but, uh, man, he was, he was big shit and we were looking for big things. I thought gang could have headlined WrestleMania with Hulk at the day. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people are going to hear you say that and be like, Yeah, but King Kong Bundy did it. So, yeah. And, and to me, gang gang was better th- worker than Bundy for yeah. a big man, man. He was he was tremendous. He could move, had that big nasty look, and he made some decent money with Hulk back in the day, but I felt that he could have had a much bigger and better run with Hogan.
1: I greatly preferred the one man gang over Akeem the African dream. But without Akeem the African dream, you know I might not be here, right?
2: This is true. Are you uh, gonna wear the, the dashiki when you get married? No.
0: Okay.
2: Just curious. I mean, it would be a nice little good look for you as his gang just kind of leans on Duggan here and Duggan's blown sky high. <laughs> he, got, <laughs> he got in, he got in this damn thing earlier in the evening and is thinking, God, get over the top. Thank
0: you. Gang. Oh, and the winner Sergeant Duggan.
1: So there you go. Hacksaw Jim Duggan is your winner of the 1988 Royal rumble. And, uh, it's the 30 year anniversary, man. We're going all the way back to the beginning and we hope that you are looking forward to seeing us tomorrow night, right before the Royal rumble. Don't you dare miss it. Uh, we're going to be in Philadelphia at the old ECW arena, the corner of Swanson and Rittner. And Jake, the snake Roberts, who was just in this very first Royal rumble. He's going to be there doing his one-man show as
2: well. And where can you pick up tickets? Bruce? At pronounspal.com is a place to get them. And we'll see all you guys at the old ECW arena N 32. Oh my gosh. Will you stop? Come
0: on, Jesse. What are you talking about?
1: I had a great time going back and reliving this first Royal rumble. And it's got me in the mood for this year. We never talk about current wrestling, but I want to pick from me. Do you have a pick for this year's Royal Rumble winner? I want
2: Roman Reigns to win. No, I was hoping I do that because it's in Philadelphia. He is the guy. And I think it would be great if he won it again in Philly.
1: I think the crowd would agree with you. It will be something that people are talking about. (laughs) Uh, So there you go. Go ahead and vote in our poll. Don't forget next week, as we're still watching this, we're seeing the signing between Hulk Hogan and Andre, the giant they're signing a match to go down on NBC, the main event of February, 1988 spectacular. And we're going to be bringing it to you next week on the second. So Friday, the second is the main event, and we're going to go ahead and give you an opportunity to hear all the behind the scenes goings on. And we might even do part of it as a little bit of a watch along. And we see Hulkster about to do some posing here because Hulkster must
2: pose, right?
0: Well, hell yeah.
2: Get him out there. He's got to pose with a little Craig Minervini. But uh, yeah, Hulkster's got to pose, man. You can't end a show without Hulk posing. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together,